This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and my guest today is Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, and he joins us once a month for Philosophical Currents, a philosophical look at some of the biggest news stories. Dr. Jack, thanks for joining us today. I am happy to be here. Actually, it's good to hear your voice again. That's a new one, Dr. Jack. I don't think we're going to keep it up, though. It makes me sound like a sex therapist, actually. So. That's a different episode, Jack. Yes. <laughs> we do want to talk, though. We probably will be talking about sex at some point in this conversation because it comes up a lot in conversation as we start to talk about what are rights. And as you and I were discussing what we should talk about for this month's philosophical currents, we kind of kept coming back to the Supreme Court and its recent decisions and some things that that may impact in the future. So, Jack, I want to start with this idea of the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. It is the final authority on Rights. Now, the United Nations defines rights as inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. That word inherent, though, seems to be the the bugaboo here, because why else would we need a Supreme Court if these things are just guaranteed? So, Jack, to a philosopher, what are rights? Well, this is a rabbit hole within a rabbit hole within a rabbit hole within a rabbit hole. The question of what rights are is as old as, I'll say, modern political philosophy, which is about 500 years old, but really stems through the beginning of philosophy. And there are two really important distinctions we have to make. The first is just between the way everyone uses the word rights. You know, I have the right to stand here and and I have the right to buy this product. And what that really means is don't try to stop me. This is something that I want. They're not going to arrest me for this or something like that. And that's very ambiguous and it's more of an emotional call. But then there's this other metaphysical right, legal right, and that distinction between a legal right and I'll call it for the moment a moral right or a natural right, that's the big difference. So what the Constitution does is set up the rules for the United States. And the Constitution tells us what our legal rights are. Now, legal rights are not moral rights. We'll get there in a second. The problem with the Constitution is that it's intentionally vague, and it's intentionally vague because they wrote it to last a long time, and they didn't know there was going to be an Internet, and they didn't know that African-Americans were going to be freed, and they didn't know that women would be allowed to vote. And so they wanted to create a document that let people shift things over time, but that means there's interpretation. And that's what the Supreme Court does. The Supreme Court interprets the Constitution, so it's sort of applying the rules, and the United Nations is is trying to apply the rules for the whole world as opposed to just our country. Well, the phrase that you used, an emotional call, I'm going to do what they what they call in, you know, in television and in theater, breaking the fourth wall here, where a character looks at 
the you know the audience and starts talking directly to them and give you a little bit of a breakdown of how you and I started planning this discussion and you can kind of get some look behind the scenes here because I ended up messaging you before this interview even started of Jack I don't really feel like I have a lot of cohesive questions to ask, but I have a lot of notes and most of them are sort of sentence fragments. And we run into this conversation all of the time when you start to talk about rights that people get emotional. They get their backs up against the wall. Emotions run high, but not necessarily the ability to have cohesive thought that doesn't always, you know, come up as high and as fast as the emotional impact. How do you even really start to talk about rights when it can be so deeply emotional for people? First of all, you have to acknowledge that those emotions are real and legitimate. If you say to someone, you are not allowed to marry the person you love, they're going to become deeply upset. They're going to be angry. They're going to be frustrated. They're going to be scared. They're going to be sad. They're going to be all of these things. And when you're that emotional, it's very hard to have a logical argument because this is so important to you. And so you end up saying things like, but I love them. I should be allowed to marry them because I love them. Other people can marry the people they love. Why can't I marry the people I love? That's not even an argument. It's a question, but it gets to the heart of the matter. If you say to someone, you are going to be forced to have a child that you don't want, that you didn't plan, that maybe you were assaulted uh, in, in getting pregnant, and you're going to have to carry that child, give birth to that child, and possibly pay for it and live with it for the rest of your life. You're going to get emotional. You're going to be really upset. The flip side, if you honestly think that, that abortion is murder, you're also going to get upset. So the fact that rights are a technical issue and the fact that we have to do all of this legal and philosophical gymnastics to talk about it shouldn't overshadow the fact that what rights are, are the fundamental framework for our daily experience. What rights do is tell us what we can and can't do and what we can aspire for. The idea of rights comes hand in hand with the idea of human freedom, that we as people are created to fulfill our purpose or to cultivate our humanity or to to create and, and care and love. Every single thing we do, everything we aim for, everything we hope to be, everything we hope for our children are allowed or disallowed with rights. And so if you look at a country like North Korea that does not have individual rights, their lives are barren, suffering, black and white, and they're ultimately prisoners. That's why rights are so important. And the emotional aspect of it is an indication of how intimate and important they really are. Well, so you are bringing us to the recent decision from the Supreme Court, the Dobbs v. Jackson uh, Women's Health Organization that has been in the news pretty continuously. Uh in in revoking the constitutional right to an abortion and then turns it over into a state's rights issue. Uh, lots of different ways to pull this apart, but let's start with law and medicine at times have different definitions for pregnancy. Why is that important? 
Medicine is science. Medicine tries to find an objective term that fits in all circumstances. So when is someone pregnant? Someone's pregnant when they have the potential for life in them or actual life in them. When is someone pregnant depends on the gestation period. And all of these things are, don't just apply to human beings. They apply to all animals at all times because medicine and science are trying to describe nature in its full force. The legal definitions or the legal accounts are about what you have access to, who is supposed to help you, who's going to help pay for it, what can they arrest you for, all of those sorts of things. And at the heart of this is this important distinction that is really the heart of the matter, which is legal rights versus natural rights. A legal right is a right you have in a country at any given time. And if the Supreme Court says you have the right to have an abortion, then you have the right to have an abortion. And if the Supreme Court says you don't have a right to have an abortion, then you don't have a right to have an abortion. And as an aside, that's what they said. The state's rights thing is a little misleading. But what they said is you do not have a right to have an abortion. Now, the natural law says by virtue of our humanness, by virtue of who we are, you have, I'll just stick with the example, a right to have an abortion. Now, we don't know that that's what the natural law says, but let's pretend for a second that we do. You have a right to have an abortion. So then the question is, does the legal right meet up with the moral right or the natural right? If it does, it's good. If it doesn't, it's bad. This is the basis of Martin Luther King's argument. Martin Luther King's argument, which he actually gets from uh, St. Augustine from around the year 500, I think, uh, four or 500, is there are two laws, the law of God and the law of man. And when the law of man is in alignment with the law of God, it's just and when the law of man is not in alignment with God, then it is unjust. And so what many people want to say is, regardless of what you think the Constitution says, human beings have a right to control their own body and their own pregnancy and all of these things. And if the United States says it doesn't, if the Constitution says it doesn't, then it's wrong and it's immoral. So there are really two arguments going on right now in the public conversation. The first is the people who are saying the Supreme Court has interpreted it wrong. The Constitution does protect the right to abortion because there's a right to privacy and there's a right to autonomy and all these other things. And that's a legal argument about interpreting the Constitution, interpreting the laws. But then there are other people who are saying we don't care if the Constitution doesn't guarantee these rights. We have these rights as human beings. Women are full human beings. They get to make the same decisions about their own body as non-women. And therefore, if you interpret the Constitution as saying we don't have the right, then the Constitution is wrong. So, again, the legal argument is about what America says the right is. But the moral argument is about what we have naturally and whether the Constitution adequately reflects that. And you couldn't have civil rights battles. You couldn't have arguments about freedom of the enslaved. You couldn't have any of the arguments for more freedom than we anticipated if you don't hold on to the idea that there are rights larger than governments, that there are rights larger than individual perspective. And those are natural rights. Hmm. 
There is a famous case in Ireland, Jack, where a woman uh, was pregnant. Her water broke at 17 weeks, but at that time in Ireland, if you could detect a heartbeat, abortion was illegal. And at that point, the heartbeat was detectable, but the pregnancy was no longer viable. She couldn't do uh, the abortion, and she ended up getting an infection, and she died. In in the cases where um, not having access to abortion is meant to protect the potential for life of the fetus but then kills the mother, uh, what does it say about a culture when when we decide whose rights outweigh somebody else's? Well, that is the question, Right. How do you create a hierarchy of rights? Is it possible to make some people more important than others? In the classic sort of stories uh, and examples, the rights of women and children come before the rights of men. So when the ship is sinking, you put the women and the children in the lifeboats and the men die with the ship. That's a list of hierarchy. Historically, when we went to war, the rights of 18-year-old men were less important than the rights of women and older men. Why? Because they could be drafted. They could be sent to war. They could be put out to kill. Mm -hmm. So we constantly have hierarchy of rights at the heart of the argument. And this is going (laughs) to, this is going to mess with some people's minds because I'm going to use the gun argument to defend the abortion argument. (laughs) So prepare yourself at the heart of natural rights. Theory is a belief that many people have that the right to self-defense is the primary right. That everything else stems from your natural right to defend yourself when you're under attack. That comes very specifically from Thomas Hobbes, the first modern political philosopher in the 17th century. And lots and lots of people, especially gun owners, hold on to that notion of self-defense, that your right to self-defense is primary above everything else. Mm -hmm. There's a case to be made to that. So go back to the Irish example. Instead of asking... Do you save the pregnant woman? Do you save the kid? Or do you save the, you know, do you stop the pregnancy? What do you do? You can ask, does the pregnant woman have a right to self-defense? Because the pregnancy is an attack on her. And one of the things that surprises me about the pro-choice movement is that they don't use this kind of language that in many, many, many instances, an abortion is an act of self-defense. Maybe you are killing a child. I don't know. That's a religious question. Baby, you are killing a child, but we kill people all the time and we kill people in self-defense all the time. And so if a pregnancy is a genuine danger to the mother and you believe that self-defense is a primary right, then the life of the mother outweighs the life of the child, just like the life of an 18 year old boy is outweighed by government interest in war or the life of someone who is protecting themselves in home invasion, their right to life outweighs the, the, the life of the invader. So the, the, if you want to create a hierarchy of rights, you don't create a hierarchy of people. That's one of the things that civil rights says, and we should probably talk about that. But if you want to create a hierarchy of rights, and if you hold to the classic idea that self-defense is the basic right, then at least in issues of danger to the mother, the mother is always going to win out. 
Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, joining me for our monthly discussion of philosophical currents. Jack, in bringing up the right to guns and, you know, using the gun argument to talk about the case of abortions, I'm thinking about California right now. And Governor Newsom is using some of the language from gun rights laws to talk about abortion advocacy. And uh, bear with me here because I've, I've got a lot to sort of process through. <laughs> um I'm thinking about this Radio Lab episode years ago where they talk about football. And there was a coach who was famous for just figuring out ways to skirt the law over and over. You know, he sewed pockets into the early uniforms, which back then were just bulky sweaters. Um, and then they he sewed patches of footballs on those sweaters to sort of mislead the other team. And then Harvard retaliates by painting footballs the same color as their jerseys. <laughs> and and it sounds very not serious, uh, but it leads to a season resulting in 19 deaths on the football field because they keep going tit for tat of it's not explicitly against the rules. And now in in thinking about our politicians, our people, are the Supreme Court uh, judges in danger of doing this sort of tit for tat? I'll see your gun law language and I'll raise you an abortion rights language. I'll see your can't happen on American soil and I'll raise you the casino riverboat and now there maybe might be floating abortion providers. Are you worried about tit for tat and what it impacts are on the law? It depends what you mean by tit for tat. And I know I, every time I say it depends what you mean, <laughs> I sound like a philosopher, but I guess it's an occupational hazard. Rhetorically, some of this stuff is rhetoric. Some of this stuff is just political argument, and people are trying to find a clever way to make their point, to speak to their constituency, to pressure the other side, and that's just politics. However, the football example is a really good one because there are very explicit rules of the game, and the goal to win the game is to try to find all the different loopholes that are within the rules of the game without breaking the rules. How far do you go? We encounter this a lot, and, and many of our listeners will have heard these phrases, when we talk about whether or not you should act on the letter of the law or the spirit mm -hmm. of the law. Right? The letter of the law is you can do exactly what the law says. So one famous way of, of dealing with this uh, that gets a lot of attention and it, and it, and it starts with a, a podcast called Opening Arguments, the, the host, Andrew, who is actually on Y Radio. It's a great episode. Uh he, he calls it the Air Bud rule. And there was a, there was a Disney movie in the 1980s called Air Bud about a, a, a dog that was, could play basketball. And the, uh, opposing team argued that the dog couldn't. And they picked up the NBA rules and there was no rule that said a dog can't play basketball. Right. And since there was no rule that said a dog can't play basketball, the dog could play. Now, that's not really how the law works. The law has lots of implications and consequences. 
And we also have the Ninth Amendment in the United States, which says that that, that unenumerated rights are uh, retained by the people. All of this is to say, trying to find a loophole is legal reasoning, it's political argument, it's part of the game. But if you want to play by the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law, you are probably more in line morally, but you're at a political and rhetorical disadvantage. So let's go back to the second to the example of floating abortion clinics. If the argument is there is no right to an abortion in the United States and you can do whatever you want in international waters, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything other than providing women a service that they want, just like, I don't know, cocaine dealers can can do things in international waters. And, and, and I don't know, you can enslave dolphins. I don't know. Supposedly, you can do anything in international waters. If the argument is the moral argument, the natural right that women have a natural right to have an abortion and the United States doesn't allow for that, then the people who have the floating abortion clinic are doing the right thing. If you hold that women shouldn't be allowed to have an abortion, then the floating clinic is doing a wrong thing. And this is ultimately the core of the abortion debate, which is we have the liberty of religious expression and where life begins is entirely a religious question. It's not a scientific question. In the Jewish religion, in the Talmud, one of the, the, the an interpretive text, it says specifically life begins when a baby is more than 50% out of the woman's body. And up until that point, the woman's life takes priority. So when the Supreme Court says that abortion is murder, which is in essence what Alito said, what they're saying is Christian theology is more important than, than Jewish theology. Now, for Christians, that may be, but for the Constitution, it isn't. And there we have to distinguish between uh, what often gets called claim rights and liberty rights. A claim right is a right I have against someone else, right? You can't do this to me. Uh, I have the right not to be killed. Therefore, you have the responsibility not to kill me. I have the right to... Healthcare, you have the right, you have the responsibility to help pay for that healthcare. But liberty rights is I have the right to express my religion. You don't have the right to pay attention. You don't have to respect my religion. You just not have to kill me and, and, and hit me and, and, and yell at me and do all those things. I have the, I have the, the liberty of freedom of speech. You don't have the responsibility to listen to me. And so. Once we start, and this is why I said in the very beginning that it's a rabbit hole into a rabbit hole into a rabbit hole, is once you start parsing what the word means, you have to distinguish their purposes. And one of the purposes of rights is to see how when we have a right, other someone else has a duty. And another purpose of rights is to say, I get to do as much of this as the society will allow, and none of that is wrong. Jack, we have brought up the word morality or moral many times in this conversation, and I've got another long setup here. This is an excerpt from the movie Another Round, where uh, it doesn't really matter what happens in this movie, but people <laughs> testing this theory that being slightly inebriated is kind of the best, uh, you know, you have that sort of liquid courage. 
And this teacher uh, is working with students, and he says, okay, there's an election of three candidates. Who are you going to vote for? Number one, paralyzed from polio, hypertensive, uh, anemic, suffers from serious illness. It lies if it suits his purposes and consults astrologists on his politics, cheats on his wife, chain smokes, and drinks too many martinis. Number two, overweight, already lost three elections, suffers from depression, has two heart attacks, impossible to work with, smokes cigars non stop. Every night before bed, he drinks an incredible amount of champagne, cognac, port, whiskey, and adds two sleeping pills. Number three, highly decorated war hero. Treats women with respect. Loves animals. Never smokes. Only has a beer on rare occasions. Okay, ask the students, who do you vote for? The student says, well, the last one. And the teacher asks the rest of the classroom, yes, consensus. And then the professor or the teacher says, oh, boy, you just discarded Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. But thankfully, you elected this guy. And he shows a picture of Adolf Hitler. So... (laughs) (laughs) So... Long setup here to the question of does it really make sense to vote along moral lines? It seems to me that the only legitimate way to vote is along moral lines. It seems to me that our best practice as human beings is to make the best decisions that we can make for everybody collectively and balancing those with our own. This is complicated because it gets into democratic theory. In the United States, following John Locke, we believe that we should vote in our own interest and that all of the interests cancel each other out. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's the, the founder of French democratic theory, argues that what we should do is vote for what's good for everybody and put our own personal interests aside. I think we have to find a way in between because we have to balance our personal interest with what's morally right. So, for example, and I'm going to take a a horrible example here for a second. As someone who in this culture is read as white, it would certainly be in my interest for all the white people to have the property and to take the, the, the property away from anyone who isn't white. That would be in my personal interest because I'd have more property. Now, you could argue it would lead to political unrest. You could argue that that would lead to lack of scientific advancement, all of these things that might impact my interest. But in the short term, you know, in the quarterly interest, which is which is how corporations do it, that would be in my interest. But it's profoundly immoral. And if I were to hold that position, not only would I cause all sorts of problems, I would be a horrible, horrible person. So the importance of morality is to regulate our darker interests, our less sociable interests. And morality is essentially important. The other way that morality fits in your example is that the way that we think about human beings, right, the way that example set up that drug use and then alcohol use is paired with paralysis, right, is paired with the guy with the wheelchair. And so people who listen to that example have a tendency to think that being in a wheelchair is somehow 
bad the way that taking drugs and, and, and being drunk all the time or being a, a spouse beat or whatever is bad, but it's not. And the moral voice in us has to remind us that just because a person is disabled in some way, it doesn't make them less intelligent, less capable, less important, et cetera, et cetera. So the moral voice is really important. And that's why we end up having the distinction between civil rights and civil liberties. I've talked about civil liberties already, and this fits in the word is liberties, but it's still part of rights. Civil liberties are the freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of association. But what civil rights are is the rights for everyone to be treated equally. That under the law, because you're black, because you're a woman, because you're gay, because you're in a wheelchair, you should not be treated differently. You should be treated equally. Now, here's the bit. And I've said this, I'm sure, on the show before, because I, it, it is the most frequent thing I say in all of my classes, and all my students can repeat this for, verbatim. It's the single one thing I want everyone to get from all my classes, and it's as follows. Treating people equally is not the same thing as treating people identically. I'll say it again. Treating people equally is not the same thing as treating people identically. What does that mean? Everyone has an equal right to access a bathroom. But people in wheelchairs or people who have caregivers or people who have trouble standing up, they need a bigger stall than everyone else. And so in order to treat people equally, you have to give them more. You have to give them a bigger stall for everyone to have the right and the access to, to a public bathroom. Same way with, with ramps, right? You have to have a ramp so that people who have trouble walking can walk up the ramp. So to treat people equally is not the same thing as to treat people identically. And civil rights is the rights foundation of saying our society has to treat everyone equally, these uh, specifically protected groups equally, and we have to do the things that we need to do in order to put them on an equal playing field. And if that means there are only three bathroom stalls instead of four, but one has to be bigger, that's what you do. If that means it costs a little more money to build a ramp on a building than it would otherwise, that's what you have to do because that's what equality means. And that's where the civil rights comes in because the civil rights tell us that people have to be treated equally, whatever equally means in that particular context. This is occurring to me as I'm asking it here. It's such a it's such a hard question, Ashley. It's so it's so complicated. It's so deep, and people spend entire careers working on this. Mm -hmm. Not to mention lawyers, right? Lawyers who spent you know, and Supreme Court justices, right? They've they've most of them have spent lifetimes yeah. doing this. Uh, well, let, let's go back to the Supreme Court justice here, and in framing this. Next question in what you just said, that uh, treating someone equally is not the same thing as treating them identically. But, of course, we all have to uh, live under the laws that are codified by the Supreme Court. Um, what do you think would happen, Jack, if Supreme Court justices were elected by popular vote instead of appointed by a president uh, with a presumed, you know, some people make the argument that they will have, you know, a loyalty to a political party. Anyone who says the Supreme Court isn't a political institution is just lying <laughs> or they just don't know any better. The Supreme Court is and always has been a political institution. There is a philosophy uh, called um, legal realism, which argues that all legal interpretation 
is just political haggling and that basically what happens is the judge makes it uh, has an intuition and then they come up with an argument to justify their intuition. There are other versions of, of legal theory, natural law, which is and, and legal positive, and which are the other two things that I was talking about, which are is there an is there a natural interpretation of the law? Is there a universal law or is it just the government puts aside? So what would happen? I think what would happen is people would elect based on their own interests. And if that were to happen, we would have to have a Supreme Court of 50 or 100 or 150 people. Because the one, once you start having the democratic process shift and change the judges at any one time, then you need to balance out all of the tensions and all of the, 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 the disagreements. We know, and actually we can, we can have an, a, a very clear example of how this happens. We know that there are many places in this country where judges are elected, not appointed. And we know that many lawyers, the best lawyers, will go shopping for the right judge, jurisdiction shopping. They want this tried in this place or this civil court by this judge because they know that that judge is going to be more sympathetic to their position. Now, that doesn't seem very equal on the appellate level uh, and on the extreme High, higher levels, uh, often judges are chosen by lot. They're, ju- they're chosen randomly because they don't want anyone to go judge shopping or jurisdiction shopping. So we know what happens when democracy, when people choose judges. The problem is Thomas Jefferson himself said the fundamental conflict in any society is not between government and individual. It's not between state and state. It's between older generation and younger generation. And that he thought that there should be basically a revolution every 27 years, which is how long a, a generation was. And the idea is the 80 year olds shouldn't be making decisions about the world as it is now. As much as I... Joe Biden, Joe Biden wants to be an ally for the LGBTQ community. He does his best. But when you're 82 years old and someone says, to, I don't know how old he is, but he's eight, let's say 80. If you're 80 years old and someone tells you there aren't two genders, there are five genders or whatever, that doesn't make any sense to you. It's not that you don't have good interest and it's not that you don't believe them. It's just it's really, really hard to have a fundamentally different worldview when you're that old, I mean, I'm, I'm 53 and, and, and I, am I 53? I think I'll be 53 this year. <laughs> Don't rush me. Um, uh, and I see the things that my, my daughter shares things on TikTok, right? To me all the time. And she's laughing hysterically. I have no idea what mm-hmm. she's talking about. Yeah. Right. And then you get all these people who are supposed to regulate the internet and they have no idea how the internet works. So the problem with the Supreme Court isn't that one position gets entrenched. It, it has consequences. But but the problem, especially because all of the justices are chosen by a political process, the problem is most of these people have no idea how everyday people live. Mostly people have no idea what it's like to have a life on the Internet, to meet, to have to live paycheck by paycheck. And this, by the way is the argument for why we needed Katanji Brown Jackson, right? People, it, 
it's not because she is black and we need a black person on the Supreme Court. It's that if the Supreme Court justices have no idea what it's like to be black in the United States, what it's like to be afraid of police officers, what it's like to be followed in Walmart, what it's like to be looked down upon because you're trying to 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 go to law school, if they don't have any perspective on any of that, then how can they interpret the Constitution in a way that's relevant to everyday's life? So it's not that that Justice Jackson is chosen because the color of her skin. She's chosen in part, in part because she's among the most qualified human beings to ever step on the on the on on the on the Supreme Court, but in part because there is a profound slice of the American experience that has never been acknowledged on the Supreme Court. And we want our laws to recognize that or our laws are not going to be inclusive. And if our laws are not inclusive, then they're not moral. And that goes back to the the question of morality versus legality. Well, Jack, in the closing minutes of this conversation, I want to focus on the impact of a decision like Dobbs v. the Jackson Women's Health Organization and some of the concerns out there uh, that it could impact future decisions. Like you said, uh, it is at its heart, you know, about privacy. Some people are concerned it will impact gay marriage or interracial marriage or even access to contraception. Uh, What are you you looking at here uh, in, in terms of that? So, again, we have to remember that the Supreme Court is interpreting the law. And one of the positions that has been held now for 50 years is that there is this thing called a right to privacy. Now, there is no explicit right to privacy in the Constitution, but there's also no explicit claim that one person gets one vote. What there is, is the technical term is penumbra. All of these different things uh, come together to tell us that there's a right to privacy, the right to freedom of expression, the right to freedom of assembly, the right to freedom of religion, the right to uh, have your house not uh, – you don't have to quarter soldiers in your house, right? All these things is a right to privacy. And if you say there's no right to privacy – If you say that the right to privacy is a state's issue rather than a federal issue, then that means that there isn't an inherent right to privacy in the United States. The problem with that isn't just that it's abortion. The problem is that there are a whole bunch of cases, famous cases that are based on the right to privacy. So if, for example, there's no right to privacy. There can't be gay marriage. There can't be interracial marriage. There can't be sodomy, right? You can't have anything but missionary sex for procreation. What does uh, that have can't... to do with privacy? Why are people concerned about that? Because what you do in your bedroom when no one else is watching affects nobody but you and whoever else is in your bedroom. And so Privacy there is is not just figurative, it's literal. So in order for the government, and there was a very famous case about this. This is the, the case that led to uh, the decision of the Supreme Court. Two men were in their bedroom uh, having sex, and there was a roommate. And police came looking for one of the guys. I th- can't remember if it was a mistake or not. I think it was a mistake. And they knocked on the door and the roommate said, oh, yeah, uh, Joey's in the back room. And the police walked in and discovered the two men having sex and they arrested him for it. Mm. This because is the Lawrence it was v. A- Texas in 2003. Yes, this is right. 
Right. Exactly right. Thank you. It was Lawrence v. Texas in 2003. And, they, and, and point out 2003, right? Not 1954, 2003. And because sodomy was illegal, the police, regardless of whatever else was going on, got to arrest them for having sex in their own bedroom behind closed doors. What's more private than that? If the government says you can't have that kind of sex, they're also saying it for heterosexual couples. They're also saying it for solo sex. All of these things are the right to privacy, including right the right to intermarriage and the right to contraception. Nothing is more private than the decision to use a condom or be on a birth control or, or, or pull out, you know, the rhythm method. And we've seen in the last week, this is not fantasy. We have seen in the last week, there have been votes in which almost 200 Republican House members refuse to codify the right, not just to same sex marriage, but to interracial marriage. They say, well, this is what they're going to say is this is a state's issue. This is not a federal issue. And this is I've said this sort of obliquely throughout the entire conversation. I keep saying if it's a state's rights, then it's not a real right. Then, then you don't really have the right. Imagine you are married to someone of a different race in North Dakota and you go then to South Dakota and it's a, and, and there's no federal right. So this South Dakota doesn't recognize your your marriage. Not only do they not recognize your marriage, not only can't you access them in the hospital. You can't have a hotel in common. They could arrest you. They could put you in prison. So all of a sudden, if you only have the right to interracial marriage in North Dakota, then you are trapped in North Dakota. You can't leave North Dakota. Anyone who, you know, Minnesota uh, famously, you know, a few weeks ago, accidentally legalized edibles, <laughs> right, in, uh, in, in, in their state. It would not surprise me if there is now an increase of state troopers and, and, and city police on all of the borders stopping anyone who they think might have edibles because they want to arrest them. And that would be perfectly legal. So anytime you say it's a state's right, not a federal right, it means you don't have the right other than in that particular area. And if there's no right to privacy, then all of these things, including using contraception, including interracial marriage, all of these things mean you are trapped in whatever state lets you be who you want to be. I mean, historically, people were arrested not even for having gay sex, but just for being gay. So how would it feel if you are a North Dakotan and you never got to leave North Dakota because stepping outside into South Dakota, into Montana, into Minnesota meant you would be arrested just for being who you are. That's why it's a federal right. And that's why it's a human right. Because what we should be saying is people have the right to marry who they want to marry as long as they are consenting adults, whatever that means. And they have the right not to be arrested for marrying that person wherever they go. Because marriage is a human right or contraception is a human right or privacy is a human right. And you have to also remember that once you say that the government can, say, decide you can't have an abortion, they can also decide you must have an abortion. Because if 
the government gets gets to decide who gets an abortion, who doesn't. Then the government gets to make any decision they want about abortion. And that means forced abortions. And we know that there's a long history of this. It's in China. There have been forced abortions, of, uh, forced sterilizations in the United States. There's been all sorts of things like the experiments on syphilis in, in Tuskegee. Pro-choice doesn't just mean I have the right to have an abortion. It also means I have the right not to have an abortion. This is why rights are so important. This is why rights are so essential. This is why the right to privacy is so essential, because our bodily autonomy, our decisions about sexuality, our decisions about love, our decisions about religion are all rooted in privacy. And if that's not a natural right, I don't know what is. And if our country and our, and our Supreme Court doesn't recognize that, then at minimum, our Supreme Court is profoundly immoral and at maximum we lead to anarchy and chaos, and no one is a full human being. Provocative, as always, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. Thanks for joining us. A it's my job. Philosophical currents. <laughs>